Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to look, as we read, at verses 10 down through verse 21. And the title of our time together this morning is Don't Miss It. Don't Miss It. And I pray uh, that we would not miss it today as we come uh, to the Word of God together. Let's pray. And as, again, we pray, as I pray, I ask that you would pray as well, that God would just speak to our hearts, that He would give clarity, that He would give understanding, and that we would be obedient. God, we thank you again for this time that we have to look into your word this morning. And God, I do pray that we would approach your word with a seriousness in our hearts. God, that we are hungering, that we're longing, that we're desiring to be fed with food from heaven. God, I pray that your spirit would would have free course in our hearts, that we would lay aside the distractions, that, that we would clear our minds of maybe even the burdens that we're carrying, God, so that we can focus wholly on the text before us and truthfully wholly on the Christ of the text before us. We do pray this morning, God, that you would use your word in our hearts. As your children, God, we pray that we would be obedient. And for those who who are here today who are not your children, God, we pray that they would gain understanding and by faith they would trust Christ as their Savior. Pray you be with the children's church classes downstairs, God. May those children grasp the truths that are taught to them this morning. Be with the workers, be with the nursery, God. May those babies even feel your love now through uh, those who are taking care of them at this time. We thank you again, and we promise to give you all the praise and honor and glory for what you do in this place this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you ever not been able to see what was right in front of your eyes. Uh, I'm often bad at this, and if you're a man, you probably can agree with me in this, but I'm often bad at this. I can be at the refrigerator and uh, peering in, searching, looking for something that, that I need at this moment to make my meal complete, and I'll say, Brianna, I don't think we have any more of X, Y, or Z. And she'll pipe up from the table or from around the kitchen, and she'll say, it's right beside the... And then I'm saying, well, I can't see that either. And then in a moment's notice, she comes over without even taking a glance, opens up the fridge, grabs what I need, and sends me on my way. Anybody else ever like that before? Unfortunately, my kids get this trait from me, and so Brianna's full-time job at home is really just finding the things that are very easily seen in the room at the time that we're there. We all probably have faced things like this, where something important to us, something pertinent to our lives was right directly in front of us, and yet we still miss it. And maybe we miss it because we're preoccupied with another set of circumstances. Maybe we miss it because we're in a daze. Maybe we're distracted by the burdens of life, or we're distracted by our own wandering thoughts. But certainly we have all been in that place where what we needed was right in front of us, and yet we missed it, even though it was standing right there the whole time. Jesus had been revealing who he was throughout the gospel story so far as we've made our way through Mark's gospel. With his words, the people were astounded. With his works, the people were amazed. With his compassion, the people were drawn to him. But it still seems that, though the, that as though the people were flocking to Jesus because of only what he could do or say, and they missed this idea that he was more than a man. They missed this idea that, that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. As Mark has shown us, there were really two primary groups that Christ was most frustrated with at times. The first group was the scribes and the Pharisees. 
If you remember, they did not like Jesus. And in fact, in Mark uh, 3, 6, we see that they already were trying to figure out how to get rid of Jesus by taking his life. These people were indeed religious, and they had great pride in their accomplishments, but their hearts were far from God, and we see that time and time again. They didn't like the message of Christ, that he was indeed the Messiah, and they didn't like the methods of Christ, the manner in which he did certain things. And so time and time again, they tried to back Christ into a corner to where they would trip him up or mess him up, but every time they do that, who is it that walks away looking like a fool? It certainly isn't Christ. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. The second group that Christ often seemed to be frustrated with were his own disciples. He had chosen them, and they were in some ways indeed devoted to him. And while we would applaud their devotion, we also can recognize their hard hearts that caused them to miss the depths of who Christ really was. They were friends with Christ, but Christ was more than just a friend. They were fascinated with Christ, but this fascination needed to settle deep in their hearts and transform their lives. And eventually it would do this. And we can read in the book of Acts how these men went and turned the world upside down. But in this scenario and the ones that are surrounding it, we understand again that the disciples were a little slow when it came to understanding who Christ was. As Christ continues to move about in his earthly ministry, the things that he does And the things that he says leave a trail of crumbs for those who were truly understanding to look back on and see how Christ was revealing truth about himself all along the way. But in this account, we see that Christ drives a couple of points home that would indeed be helpful for us to grab a hold of and meditate on. The big idea this morning is this. Have you met? I'm sorry. The big idea is this. Many have missed the reality of Christ Because they either look for something he is not or because they misinterpret his words. True followers receive him as he is and listen to what he says. And so as we dive in this morning, let us determine not to miss the truth of Christ. If you're here today and you have never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, then I would pray today that that you would see him in his fullness. Don't see him as simply another religious symbol or another religious teacher, but see him as very God who came to this earth and robed himself in flesh, who lived a perfect and sinless life and then died on the cross for the sins of the world so that we could be forgiven. See Christ as this and it will change your life. See Christ as anything else but that and you will be left confused in your religiousness for the rest of your days. For those of us today who are saved, For those who would say we have seen Christ as he came, as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, I would ask us today, then where are we missing him in this moment? And what he has said and what he has done, how have we misinterpreted him to be something that we want rather than something that he is? So I just want to see two things this morning that hopefully will help us not to miss the reality of Christ. The first one is this, how do we we miss Christ? We miss Christ when we ignore his works, ignore his works. In verses 10 through 13 of chapter 8, the text again says this, And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed 
deeply in his spirit. This is the third time that we've seen Christ sigh in just a few short chapters. And he says this, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. So how do we miss Christ? First off, we ignore his works. The unfolding story of Christ in the Gospel of Mark has been fast-paced, to say the least. As we started this uh, series, we said that one of Mark's favorite words to use was immediately. And he jumps from from narrative to narrative, from storyline to storyline, from event to event, all the while showing us great and important details of the truth of who Christ was. Verse after verse, we see Christ doing what would be impossible for the natural man. Time after time, we see Christ endlessly proving that he was more than a normal human being, but he was truly God in the flesh. And all of these wonderful works were pointing to the reality that Jesus was different. He was different than the Pharisees. He was different than the priests. He was different than any other religious figure that had ever led the people of God up till this point. He was indeed God. If the people of Christ's day had paid attention to the Old Testament prophecies, and if they had listened to the testimonies of people like Simeon and Anna, then they would have had a better understanding of who this Christ was. But because they chose to look past the things that Christ was doing, because they chose to look beyond what Scripture had already revealed to them, they were missing the reality of Christ. As the story continues from where we were Last week, as Jesus had, again, compassion on the multitudes and he fed the 4,000, in verse 10, the Bible says that they entered into a ship, that Jesus entered into a ship with his disciples, and they sailed to the parts of Dalmanatha. We don't really know where this is. Some believe it was near Magdala or Tiberias, but its exact location is not fully known. But we do know this. When Christ arrived there, there was a group of people that were waiting for him. These weren't fans of Christ, these weren't friends of Christ, but rather these were the ones who time and time again set up in opposition to what Christ was saying and to what Christ was doing. Mark says that when they arrived, the Pharisees came forth. And what do you think Jesus was thinking in his mind when they saw this religious crowd coming towards him once again? Here we go. Here they come. What is it that they're going to say? How is it that they're going to accuse me? And the Bible says that as they came, it would appear that they were watching and waiting. They were spying on and following Jesus. And at this point, they tried again to trap Jesus and prove that he was not God. The Pharisees were really, really bothered by Christ. So much so that it seems they knew there was something special about him but they would not accept the reality that he was the Christ. Do you know there's many people in our world who still live with that mindset? They can recognize in some way that there is indeed something special about Christ, but they will not accept the reality that he was God in the flesh who came to be the Savior of the world. The Pharisees were annoyed by the things that Jesus was able to do, and they wanted to attribute his works constantly to the other side, to to demonic forces, to evil uh, corruption that had taken place in his life. But time and time again, Christ stood firm in front of them and proved once more that he was indeed the God who came to save them from their sins. Think of what Christ had done at this point, or up until this point. 
Those who had been oppressed or possessed by demons had been delivered. Those who were deaf had been given their hearing once again. Those who were lame were made whole. Those who had diseases were cleansed. Those who were dead were brought back to life. Multitudes have been fed. Storms had been calmed. And here come the Pharisees. And what is it that they're saying? We want a sign. We want you to prove that you are God. We want you to prove with a sign from heaven that you are the one who has been sent to save your people from their sins. The Bible says that they came questioning him. They were tempting him. They were seeking a sign from him. And who does this sound like if we think back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? Doesn't it sound just like their father, Satan? Satan tempted Christ. Satan questioned Christ. Satan demanded a sign that if you truly are who you say you are, then do these things. We know that Christ overcame those temptations or those sayings of Satan by using the word of God. And here again, we see this group coming in a similar manner, saying, we want a sign from heaven. We want to see you prove who you say you really are by the works that you do. And when Jesus hears the tone and the voice, and when he sees the heart of these Pharisees, the Bible says again in verse number 12 that he sighed deeply in his spirit. We've seen a couple of sighs of Christ so far, and we have said that each of the sighs in some ways points us to the reality that the world was broken, that there was great unbelief, that there were were people who would not receive him and would not accept him, This sigh in the heart or the spirit of Christ was again revealing his his not really discouragement or disappointment, but his understanding of how bad things really were. Have you ever walked into a situation before that was heartbreaking, a situation that seemed hopeless, and all you could really do was sigh? We've all been there. And in some ways, that's what's happening here as Christ sighed at the coming of the Pharisees, at the questioning of the Pharisees, at the tempting of the Pharisees. He sighed from deep within his spirit. And he says these words, why does this generation seek after a sign? Now, hadn't a sign already been given? If we think back to the prophecies of the birth of Christ, what is it that Isaiah says? Behold, you shall receive a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And so that sign became a reality when Christ was born of the Virgin Mary 30-something years ago at this point, yet they rejected that sign. And then as, as Christ was baptized, before he made his way into the wilderness, another sign was given as the Spirit of God came down and rested upon him. And yet the religious crowds, they, they didn't receive that sign. And more signs were given as Jesus taught, as Jesus healed, as Jesus did the miracles. Many, many signs were given in the days of Christ, and yet they were rejected. And so when Jesus says, why doth this generation seek after a sign? He's he's relaying this idea that many signs have already been given, and yet they've refused to receive them. And then Jesus goes on and says, verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Well, that seems confusing because we just listed a whole bunch of signs. What is, what is it that Jesus is saying? This word generation is not talking about a timeline of people. So people that were born in 1980 to 2023, I have to admit something. I, I saw something yesterday that said it was from 1980, and I'm thinking to myself, man, that's only 20 years ago. And then I stopped, like, no, that's, 
43 years ago. Doesn't it seem like the 80s weren't that far away? Some of you, yeah, we won't even get into that this morning. You know where I'm going with that. But the generation, the word generation that Jesus is using here does not mean a timeline of people, so a group of people that were born from here to here, but rather it's talking about a grouping of people, people that held to a certain set of ideological viewpoints or or ideas. Jesus says this generation or this grouping of people, this people who believes this certain way, no sign shall be given unto them. It was a reminder of what Jesus already told us of the hard-hearted nature of those who were unbelieving, that nothing, nothing, nothing can turn them away from the error of their hearts to the truth of Christ. And so as these men gathered around and they, they said, Jesus, show us a sign from heaven, as they began to tempt him and ask of him questions, Jesus sighed within himself and he says, you're not going to get another sign because you've already rejected the signs that have been given to you. And really this idea of demanding a sign from God, we could see in other places in the word of God where it didn't go well either. Because if we're not willing to receive Christ as who he is, then we're probably not going to be willing to receive Christ when he does what we want him to do. You say they were were tempting him. They were trying to manipulate him. They were trying to get him to bow to their authority instead of them bowing bowing to his authority. And all of this was being done because they were false teachers who were being led by the very one who had blinded them. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, it says this, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Paul is saying there's a grouping of people in the world who are blinded to the reality of the goodness of God and the saving nature of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what was taking place in this moment. They had been given signs. They had been shown that Jesus was the Christ by the things that he did. And yet they were rejecting those very things because Christ was not bowing to their authority. Some would say, well, Christ just had it out for the Pharisees. He didn't like them from the get-go. No, friend, let's rewind and remember that it wasn't Christ who didn't like the Pharisees, but it was the Pharisees who didn't like Christ. If we go to John chapter 3, who was it that came to Jesus by night? Was it not a Pharisee? Was it not one of the religious leaders of the day who came seeking out Jesus? And when he came, did Jesus say, no, you're a Pharisee, I want nothing to do with you? No, Christ clearly displayed for him and outlined for him the gospel that could change his life. And this is where we get the most famous verse in all of God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it wasn't that Christ didn't love the Pharisees, but it's that the Pharisees were so hard-hearted that they would not receive the truth of who Christ was. As I said a moment ago, they wanted Christ to bow to their authority instead of them bowing to his authority. And any time we set ourselves at odds against God or against Christ or against the word of God, saying, God, you need to do things my way, then we're setting ourselves in a very, very bad place. They wanted a sign, and Jesus says, no sign will be given to you. And then verse 13 reveals that Jesus left them. 
And what a sad scenario that is. That the very Savior, the Son of God, the one whom they had seen do great signs and wonders and works and miracles, the one who they had seen teach such great and, and, and uh, unorthodox truths that they had never heard before, the, the, the very one who was sent from God to redeem them is now the very one who is leaving them lost in their sins because they did not have eyes to see. Friend, do you understand today that there will come a time in life where you will have your last opportunity on this earth to bow before the very Son of God? Many say, well, I'll do it my way. I'll figure it out my way. I'll make it there in my own strength. And the Bible would say, no, you can't. You see, that's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. If we think back to the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? Who who, who was it that could enter into the kingdom of God? Only those whose righteousness exceeded the righteousness of who? The scribes and the Pharisees. They thought they were all set because of how good they were, but Christ was using them in the Sermon on the Mount to reveal that even in their righteousness, they're not righteous enough to make it to God. And so what did they need? What did we need? We needed the righteousness of another. And who is that other that came to live and to die and to rise again so that we could be forgiven? It is none other than the very person, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. So how do we miss Christ? We ignore his works. We ignore the reality of what Christ did on this earth, thinking that our way is better. How do we miss Christ in our daily lives when we fail to see how he's working in us and through us? Do you remember what they said at the end of Mark 7 after Jesus had, had healed the man of his, his tongue um, um, speech impediment and as he gave hearing back to that same man who was deaf? What is it that the people said? He does all things well. Everything he does is perfect. And friend, in our lives, if we do not live with that attitude, if we do not live with that mindset, then we will miss the reality of what Christ is doing in our lives, even through the most difficult of circumstances. So how do we miss Christ? First off, we miss him when we ignore his works. The Pharisees didn't like the works that Jesus did. They wanted something different. And friend, how many of us could say in our lives we've wanted God to do something different than he's already done for us and we reject his good work wanting something other than what he's already given. So how do we miss him? We miss him first by ignoring his works. Secondly, this morning, how do we miss Christ? We miss Christ when we misunderstand his words. In verses 14 through 21, the story continues on. Jesus and the disciples had entered into the ship and they departed to the other side. And the Bible says, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread in verse 14. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. It really seems odd that Mark gives us this detail, like of how many many groceries they brought with them on this journey. But it's an important detail uh, that is going to help us understand the rest of the passage as Christ begins to really broaden their perspective and open their minds a little more than it already was. So they've only brought one loaf. And then in verse 15, the Bible says, And he charged them, saying, speaking to the disciples, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. 
Another one of Christ's great teachings, one of these times where he was alone with his disciples pouring into them, and yet again we see that the disciples missed it because in verse 16, we see why the detail in verse 14 was given. In verse 16, they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? Should we be concerned about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Is Jesus talking about this idea that we didn't bring enough bread for the journey? Is he upset with us? They were confused as to why Jesus said what he said. And as they went back and forth amongst themselves, talking about how much bread they did have or didn't have, again, shows the distracted hearts of the disciples. We see in verse 17, the Bible says, And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not? Do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They thought and said twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, seven. And he said unto them, how is it that you do not understand? As sad as the scene was before us, as Jesus left the Pharisees, the religious crowd, and got into the boat and left, friend, I would say that this is equally sad. That these men who had spent time with Jesus, personal time, a great deal of time up to this point, that these men still were missing what Jesus was saying. But let's back things up because Christ begins this section by saying, beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, we have context that we can go back and understand what Jesus was getting at, what Jesus was saying here. And this idea of leaven is not something that's, that's new to the Bible as a whole. The Bible often talks about leaven. And in the Bible, often, not always, but often the idea of leaven would be the equivalence of sin. And so if something had leaven in it, it was proven to be uh, something that, that was false, something that was wrong, something that should be avoided. And so Jesus looks at the disciples and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. Now, what is the leaven of the Pharisees and what is the leaven of Herod? In my estimation, as I've read and studied, I would say that the leaven of the Pharisees was self-righteousness. That they could do it in their own strength, in their own way, on their own terms. They could, they could decipher the law better than even Christ himself could. And they were living the law better than anyone else was. And so the leaven of the Pharisees was self-righteousness. What then is the leaven of Herod, or some versions might say the Herodians? They're, they're lumped together, Herod being a ruler and the Herodians being a people Uh, a political group that would have been very supportive of Herod, pushing his agenda, um, trying to drive his his rule and reign further and deeper than it had ever been before. So what is the leaven of Herod? Well, in, in my estimation, the leaven of Herod would just simply be being above righteousness. So the leaven of the Pharisees was this mindset that that we haven't figured out. We're walking in holiness through our own strength, through our own efforts. We're keeping the law. We are the standard, self-righteousness. But the, the leaven of 
Herod or the Herodians was his idea that we don't need righteousness. And this was based on their position of power and political control because they were able to do whatever they wanted, because they had position, because they had this this following of people that they didn't need anybody else's righteousness because they were the ones who determined what was right and what was wrong. And friends, the reality is both of these leavens are very, very dangerous. To think that you can make it to God through your own righteous deeds will send you straight to hell. And to think that you are above righteousness, meaning that you get to determine what is right and wrong, will send you straight to hell. And so as Jesus was speaking to the disciples, he says, I need you to beware. I need you to understand that there's danger around you. You need to understand that there's traps that you can fall into that will shape the rest of your life in a way that you don't want it to be shaped. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. Both of these would show the sinfulness of pride. Both of these ideas or these illustrations that Christ would give us would show the the sinfulness of self, either thinking I'm righteous in myself or that I don't need to be righteous because I have power and position. And as Christ speaks of this idea of leaven, we know what leaven is. If you've ever made bread, I think everybody made bread during COVID. That's all I saw on Facebook. Everybody was making bread and uh, I even made some bread of my own. And I have to say it was pretty good bread. If If I ever stopped being a pastor... I'm going to be a bread maker. Just mark that down. But we know what yeast is. We know what leaven is. It causes the bread to rise. It causes the dough to rise. And how much yeast do you need when you're making a loaf of bread? Not very much. So what is Jesus saying? How much leaven of the Pharisees and how much leaven of Herod or the Herodians does it take to corrupt your life before a holy and just God? Not very much an ounce of self-righteousness or an ounce of thinking you are above God's righteousness will corrupt you in a way that is hard to recover from. This is why Paul tells us in Galatians 5.9 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin, a little bit of self-righteousness makes you unholy before a very holy God. And as Jesus was pouring into his disciples, he was speaking to them yet again about the truth of who he was. His desire was for them not to rest in themselves, not to rest in their good works, not to rest in their ability, but to rest in Christ. And so he goes into this illustration of bread again, and it leaves the the disciples pretty confused. As Christ talks about the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees, he then goes on to say, how do you guys not yet perceive what I'm saying? How is it that you don't understand? Are your hearts hardened before me? Do you have eyes, but you cannot see? Do you have ears, but you cannot see? How do you not remember? And this wasn't a casual conversation that Christ was having with his disciples in this moment but he was pouring into them deep, life-changing truths that if you allow yourself to get off the path of God's holiness that has been given to you by Jesus Christ, you will mess up your life. How do you not get it? Jesus goes on, and it seems disconnected again, and he says... 
when I broke the, the five loaves and, and the fish among the 5,000, how many baskets did you take up? They said, 12. We remember that miracle. And Jesus says, well, what about the 4,000? When I broke seven fish or seven loaves and, and just a few fish, how many fragments or how many baskets did you take up? And the disciples said, seven. They remembered the miracle. But Jesus closes this passage out with a question, and he asks them this, how is it that you don't understand? How is it you don't get it? Well, what's Jesus talking about? Well, if we were to go back to John's gospel, John gives us a little more clarity of what took place in these events. And when Jesus had fed the 5,000, do you know what discourse he went into after that, that miracle he went on to reveal to those who would listen that he was the bread of life. That no man could satisfy. That though this bread they tasted of was good in this moment, and though it met their physical needs, he was the bread that if you ate of it, you would never go hungry again. What was it that the Pharisees were hungry for? They were hungry for a sign. They wanted a miracle. They wanted something to satisfy them. The disciples were hungry, longing for power, longing for position as we see through the Gospels. And as Christ went through this discourse one more time, speaking about leaven and the danger of the leaven, Jesus looks at them and says, how do you not understand that I am all, I am everything that you need? And yet the disciples found themselves looking in every other place. And as much as we want to give the Pharisees a hard time, let's also be willing to give the disciples a hard time. And as much as we give the Pharisees and the disciples a hard time, let us also be willing to give ourselves a hard time. Because how many of us have understand the goodness of God in our lives and yet we have longed for something more? God, if you'll just give me this, then I'll be happy. If you'll just do this for me, then my life will be complete. If you could give me what they have, God, then I will be satisfied. If you can fix this situation that I'm dealing with, this burden that I'm carrying, this load that has weighed me down, God, if you could just do these things for me, then I'll be satisfied. And you know what Jesus is saying? Beware of leaven. Beware of longing for something that I haven't given to you. Beware of thinking highly of yourself in ways that you shouldn't think highly of yourselves in. You will be corrupted. You, your life will begin to decay because you're focusing on the wrong thing. And all the while, Jesus is saying, think back to what I've already done. Think back to what I've already shown you. Think back to what I've already taught you. And, and what is it that Jesus is saying to us as he was saying to the disciples? He's saying this, that he alone can satisfy. We sang the song a few moments ago. All I have is Christ. And we sing that song with great joy in our hearts, but how many, many of us actually believe it that if everything in our lives was stripped away from us, that we would still walk this world saying, I have enough because I have Christ. Jesus says, beware. Beware. Because these things creep into our lives in the smallest of ways. And what happens when a little leaven gets in? 
it leavens the whole lump. Have you ever known a Christian who when they went through a trial allowed themselves to become bitter towards God and before you know it they'd walked away from God completely? Have you ever met a Christian who became jealous or began to covet things that other people had in their lives and before you know it they've walked away from Christ completely? Do you know where that begins? It begins by not remembering what Christ has already done for you. And that's why Jesus closes the passage with the question, how is it that you don't understand? How is it that you don't understand that I am sufficient for all of your needs? How is it that you're fearful through this life? How is it that you you don't run to me first? How is it that you're not resting in my goodness? And the disciples miss the words of Christ. And when they miss the words of Christ, their lives begin to go off course and off track. And so why is it important that we rehearse the gospel? Because the gospel reminds us of everything that Christ has done for us because he loves us. And if that's all Christ ever did for us, Can we agree today that it would be enough? John Patton, since I shared this missionary story this week, this illustration or this this part of the story really got to me. John Patton and his, his wife, well, John Patton desired to go to a certain island for many years to share with these people the truth of the gospel, and eventually he found a lady who would marry him. I think that's all of our stories in here. Not a lady who wanted to marry us, but a lady who would marry us, right? And uh, she, she determined to go with him. And shortly after they made it to this island, John Patton's wife died. But do you know what he did? He stayed there. Multiple occasions, his life was threatened. They threw hatchets at him. But you know what John Patton did? He stayed there. It got to the point where, where the people on the island actually forced him to leave for his own safety. And do you know what John Patton did when he got back to Australia and then to Scotland? He raised money for what? So that he could go back there. Why? Why would a man give his all? Why would he continue when life was hard? Why, why would he give up what this life could afford him so that he could tell other people about the one who had saved him. It's because John Patton understood that Christ alone satisfies. And as the disciples had missed the words of Christ and therefore missed the person of Christ, I wonder how many of us in this room have also misunderstood. We want the gospel to say, that I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life and if you'll just follow me, then everything is going to be perfect. And in truth, that's what the gospel says. We just misinterpret it. Because does God love us? He absolutely does. Does God have a plan for our lives, a perfect plan for our lives? He absolutely does. And will things turn out perfectly in the end? They absolutely will. 
but it's all according to his plan and not our own. So how do we, how do we miss Christ? First off, we ignore his works and we misunderstand his words. Christ was warning the disciples here about the corruption that was waiting for them. It reminded me of what we saw when we looked in Genesis. And Jesus, or, or God says, sin is waiting for you at the door. Friend, do you understand that sin is waiting at the door of our hearts every single day? Every single day, something is waiting to get in there and corrupt and to divide and, and bring disunity between us and God. Sin is waiting. So Jesus says, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. As the disciples were in the boat with Jesus, they again got a personal time of teaching that I think would go on in the end to change their lives drastically. Because though they didn't get it right now, we see through the rest of the New Testament that they got it because they were willing to lay their lives down for the sake of the gospel. They were struggling. They were doubting. They were filled with fear. But as Christ continued to pour into them, their eyes began to see, their ears began to hear, their mind began to comprehend until they were fully and completely devoted to Christ. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, at least for the majority that we would understand, never got it, and it destroyed their lives. Maybe you're at a time in your life where you're in a season of doubt and question. Anybody ever been there? Be honest. We've all been there. You guys just don't like being honest in church. We've all been there. Do you know that we're not alone in those seasons of doubt and questioning? In Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6, the Bible says now... When John, this is speaking of John the Baptist, heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? Now, John knew Jesus. John knew Jesus from a child. John baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit of God come down and rest upon him. And he heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. John is the one who proclaimed to those around the, the river on that day, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And yet as John found himself in prison, waiting for what would later be his beheading, he sends his disciples and said, is, Ask him, is, is this really him? Or do we wait for another? And Christ's response was this. Go show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached unto them and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as the time came for John's life to be taken as his head was severed from his body, I believe with all my heart that John died in perfect peace. Why? Because he didn't miss it. He didn't miss it. He understood exactly who Christ was 
and that was enough for him. And friend, I would ask us today, have we missed it? And is Christ enough for us? If everything else was stripped away from us, would Christ still be enough? God, we thank you for this time that we can gather in your house. We thank you for your word. We do pray this morning, God, that that you would continue to use your word to do great works in our hearts. God, not because we deserve them, but because our desire would be to magnify Christ in life and in death. God, in the areas that we have missed it, where we've misunderstood, where we have lived out of our own fleshly strength, God, help us to, to correct the error of our ways by humbling ourselves at the feet of Christ one more time. Help us to understand his works, God, that everything was pointing to this reality that he was God in the flesh and help us to understand his words that he alone is the one who satisfies. Help us to not not put on Christ things that he does not claim of himself. Help us to not demand of Christ things that we have no right demanding. God, help us to receive him as he is and help us to hear what he says. And in doing so, may you use our lives to bring you glory for you alone deserve it. God, if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, I do pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they understand that they're a sinner and without acceptance of Christ into their life, without admission of their sinfulness before a holy and just God, they will spend their eternity separated from you forever. God, I pray that the Spirit would draw them to you now. That their eyes would be opened, that they would see their need, and that they would fall at the feet of Jesus. Thank you again. We pray that you bless our time as we sing a closing song. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.